podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome to Hell on Heels podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Brianna. I'm Amanda. And hello again. Hi there. Episode, what are we, nine? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Merry Christmas. That's all I got for everyone. Because this will come out the day after Christmas. Christmas to you. Christmas time is here. I won't hurt anyone's ears the anymore. Wonderful time of the year. Okay. Well, I told Amanda and Bree to be festive, and they did not get the correct memo. I okay. I actually have these lights. Okay. They just, I have to plug them into my desk. So it's, they're, they're kind of, you know, like. Oh. I have not shown you guys my get up yet. <laughs> I'm so excited. I can't believe I forgot. I'm very upset with myself. That's okay. We can do another one because we'll actually record um, before Christmas again. Like directly before Christmas because we record on the 22nd again. But okay. Hold on. Let me annoy my dog because she's got to be in the camera with me. And I will show you guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Holy oh, shit. That is precious. So we match. That is so cute. And I've got my ugly sweater on. <laughs> oh, cat. <laughs> a cat in a tree. <laughs> and we match. Me and the puppy match. She's not happy with me. Because I'm all right. She'll live. She's so precious. She went on her first walk today. Huh? You did your first walk today. Was it chaotic? Yeah. Yeah, because we did all three dogs. Yeah. And it wasn't even chaotic because of her. It was chaotic because of Ben's. Jealous? No, he's just not good at walking. So I have to do a lot of extra attention <laughs> with him. Um, so that's all. Okay, I am sweating in my um, this sweater. It's really thick. So I'm actually going to take it off. So I'm going to turn my camera off. But how are you guys? Good. Nothing much really to say i mean we just talked on friday so just kind of chilling what about y'all i'm also good um nothing new oh there is something new two things that i would like to share from motherhood <clears throat> so uh, i picked up annie and i was just kind of holding her and i was kissing on her face and she spit up in my mouth and <laughs> yeah disgusting yeah. yeah who are you telling it was in my mouth sounds like a your child problem <laughs> and then she does this really cute thing where when you're changing her diaper she pees in the middle of you changing her diaper and somehow she peed on my foot don't know how pretty that's boys that's supposed to do that i didn't think girls did that that's what i thought you nobody told me you took too long to uh change her apparently she was cold I I really do wonder because we have a diaper warmer or no, not a diaper warmer. We have um Jesus Christ. I'm so good with words. The wipe warmer? Yes, thank you. We have the wipe warmer and I wonder if it's just like the warm versus the cold. But gosh, yeah, she's not I a don't spoiled know. butt. Her spitting up in my face is definitely something that I'm gonna throw back at her when she gets to be a teenager and starts throwing her temper tantrums. Yeah. You're, You're going to say, you this. puked in my mouth. You spit up yep. in my mouth. Mm -hmm. And if I dealt with that, you can deal with this. Now you're grounded. Go to your room. 
I had to relive that <laughs> horrific memory. You're grounded. Go to your room. Mm-hmm. So many times. I was grounded so many times. <laughs> Weren't we all? For a while there, my mom would forget we were grounded. And we would just be like, hey, mom, can we go do this? Knowing we're grounded. And she'd be like, yeah, that's fine. See, my mom was the opposite. We would be like done with grounding. It would be over. And she was like, no, you're still grounded. And we're like, you said a week. And well, now it's two weeks. Well, this is just not fair. That was the same for me. Well, so. after a while, she caught on to our our ways of getting about things. Because it was like the next day she forgot. Or just didn't care. Could have been either. I don't know. Mm, well, I already said we took the puppy on her first walk today. We also took her to Petco. That's where the pets go, from what I hear. Oh, but good news. She slept in her kennel for half the night last night. Oh, shit. She has refused to sleep in her kennel up until this point, so. Yeah, that's really good. And I didn't have to put her in the kennel. She had walked into the kennel on her own, so I'm very excited. Give her all the treats. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I was very excited, because I was like, she went in there, fell asleep, I closed the cage, we went to bed, and I guess about midnight, Cody woke her up by going to the bathroom, and then she started screaming, and he just brought her back into the bedroom. God damn it, Cody. I told him we're cutting his liquids off at seven now. Mm-hmm. He's now uh, geriatric. Mm-hmm. He is old enough, so. <laughs> I'm going to send him diapers for Christmas. Do it. <laughs> All right, any other updates? Brie, we just posted about your graduation. At this point, when people hear it, you're going to be graduated. Yeah. So I'm going to need you to just envision how that feels and tell everyone how it feels to be a graduate. Honestly, it's scary. I currently have a job lined up for January. Don't know if this will be posted. No, it'll be posted on the 26th. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just scary, you know, being out on your own and having to do everything on your own. My parents came to Fayetteville for my graduation and to help me kind of pack things up, but I don't know. I haven't moved into the place yet. That's going to be on January 5th, maybe 7th, but yeah. What you need is a paper chain so that you can keep track of your days, your countdown days. Paper chain? What? Paper chain. Oh. Do you guys not know what that is? I know what it is. I've just never heard of it being used to count down things. Yeah, you tear a link off every t- every day a day passes. I did it for my wedding. Um, oh, that's cute. Yeah, so you just tear a link off. Yeah. That is cute. Eh, I'll be okay. You guys had a sad childhood if your paper chains were not used to count down things. Mine were used to decorate. It was a decoration through the countdown. Not mine. I'm not artistic. It wasn't even artistic. It's different colored papers that you write one day, two day, three days. You're right. Mine were not artistic. It's not mine... artistic. That's what I'm saying. They weren't because I am not artistic. It was more like decorative trash. Well, that's all it is. But like I'm saying is you can count it down. I thought it was just used to like decorate Christmas trees and shit. No, I use them as a countdown. So you just tear a chain oh. each day. That does sound fun. I'm kind of disappointed you guys didn't do that already. Okay, so I didn't know about the multiplication nine trick, and I didn't know about countdown paper trains. So, paper chains, excuse me. So, I don't know what we're doing in Alabama. You're not doing good things. No. Okay. Well, if there's no other updates, we can go ahead and get started with Amanda's true crime story, where she's going to kick it off. Yeah, we did this a while back in our practice runs. 
Uh, so hopefully y'all won't be as scarred. Oh, no, I'm still scarred. Oh, perfect. You know that I'm still going to be the detective with when it comes <laughs> to that writing. Oh, my God. I got to get through that writing again. Yeah, that was fun have to you read. Looked at your, have you looked at your notes since you first told us? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's like me with Asylum 49. It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be fun. Good thing but I do vividly, here. I do vividly remember this story because I, oof, I went down a rabbit hole with this story, a bunch of rabbit holes, Alice in Wonderland, and Wonderland rabbit hole with this one. For everybody wondering what the hell I'm talking about, I'm going to be talking about Mary Flora Bell. So Mary Bell was described as a tough little girl with brown hair and striking blue eyes. Her teachers often described her as bright but lacked feelings for other children. So we're two sentences in. We're starting off real strong here. She is one of the youngest people in the world to be convicted of murder and is sometimes seen as kind of a poster child for nature versus nurture arguments. She was born May 26, 1957 to Elizabeth Betty McCricket. Betty was a prostitute. McCricket, yes. That was her maiden name. You know what? I kind of enjoyed that last name. McCricket. I do enjoy the last name. Anything with a cricket, I don't know. And anything mm-hmm. with a Mick. So it's just got the best of both worlds. It does, doesn't it? It's just McCricket. It's got a lot of those solid sounds in it. A lot of McCricket. A lot of just hard, hard noises. A lot of k- t- <laughs> Yeah. Y'all are weird. <laughs> That's why you love us. Yep. If that's what you want to call it, sure. <laughs> mm. You've told us. Those yeah, are words coming from your mouth to you were our drunk. ears. You were drunk, but you told us. And we all know that's when you are most honest. truthful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say honest. Maybe loving. But yeah. No, I'd say honest. You give mm-hmm. us a lot of details when you're drunk. I'm sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I'm drinking water today. No, I actually ran out of vodka. So. Oh, so it wasn't by choice. Betty was a prostitute and she gave birth to Mary when she was only 17. Nobody knows who Mary's biological father is, but while she was still a baby, Betty married William Billy Bell. And Billy was a career criminal and drunk that was well known by police. And at one time he was even arrested for armed robbery. And I believe that was later on when Mary got older, but he's a stand up dad. He's a great Yeah, man. pretty responsible. I would say so. I would be friends with them as parents. <laughs> and you say that from experience now. I can, yes. Like, this is the exact sort of child I would want my child to be friends with. Exactly. In hell. I hope you're not wanting your child to go to hell. No, I'm saying, like, if we were in hell, this is who I would want her to be friends with. Oh, like, I understand I would, that, but yeah. I'm hoping you don't want your child to go to hell. I've had a good amount of sleep, so not right now. But oh, okay. I can't promise that. <laughs> <laughs> can't promise that tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. We're still in the newborn phase. So, yeah. Okay, fair. So, Mary grew up on White House Road, which was the roughest part of Scottswood. It was described as a slum area in Newcastle, Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK. It was an area known for public drunkenness, petty crimes, domestic disturbances. Basically, it was. A rough neighborhood, to say the least. From a young age, she was exposed to sexual and 
or excuse me, to sexual activity and violence, not only from her parents, but just in general around her neighborhood. Also as a child, she was unwanted and neglected. Her maternal aunt, Isa McCricket, once said that within minutes of being born, nurses tried to place Mary in her mother's arms when Betty yelled, take that thing away from me. Thing? Yes, that is an exact quote. Take that thing away from me. Done. Maybe she should have said that before she had children. I'm going to say that next time my husband comes on to me and I'm not going <laughs> to Take that thing away from me. <laughs> it was well known that Mary's mother would sometimes be gone for days and even weeks at a time. Betty would travel almost three hours to Glasgow for work and she would leave Mary at home with her dad on the occasions he was actually at home. When Betty was home, her family reported numerous quote-unquote accidents that happened to Mary as a baby and young child that led them to believe Betty was either negligent or actively trying to kill her daughter. When she was about three... She makes a great mother. Oh, yeah. Mom of the year. Either road. Yeah. Great mom. Mom of the year. Like, she's going to be on the cover of Time magazine anytime now. Yes, I agree. Oh, and also that first picture. Sorry. Uh, in the drive is a photo of little Mary Bell. When Mary was about three years old, she was dropped from a window. And on another occasion, Mary accidentally took a large amount of sleeping pills. But there were also reports that Betty had once been seen giving pills to Mary like they were candy, which added suspicion to that specific incident where she accidentally took the pills. Question. So- when you said she dropped her from a window, was it first story, second story, fifth story, tenth story? Some reports uh, said that it was a first story, and then some said that it was second. So I couldn't really get a specific. How do you drop a child from a window? Yeah, I couldn't find that either. Because I was very interested. I just, you'd have to be, if you dropped a child, drop implying that it's more accidental uh, in this Mm -hmm. scenario that means that you are holding the child outside of the window and they slipped but the question with that is why were you holding your child outside of the window maybe she maybe the window was open it was a hot day and she was walking down the hallway and stumbled and the baby flew out the window i'm not really sure don't i don't believe it that feels like a stretch I'm just saying, it feels like a stretch. If someone can clarify how you drop your child realistically out of a window, that'd be really helpful. Email us so you can just put this to rest. Well, I mean, Michael Jackson held his child out of a window slash balcony and didn't drop her, I believe. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Um, Yeah. So, oh, I wish he could kind of give us some help on the situation, but I don't know. He might have a better insight, but we'll have to wait on that mm-hmm. insight for a while. <laughs> I miss so him. either way, she was um not very well taken care of. Possibly not loved like she should have been. Oh, uh, we're still on Betty. Um, Betty also once sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who couldn't have kids of her own. So her sister... Betty's sister, Catherine, traveled across Newcastle to bring Betty back to her mother. And despite all of this, 
Betty repeatedly refused to give Mary up to any of her family members. Okay, but she just tried to sell her child to a an unstable woman. Why not sell your child to your sister? Like, what? I, I don't... Is she trying to cut off all connection? I was going to say it's almost as if she has, like, a vendetta against this child. Like, she doesn't want her but she doesn't want a stable person to take care of her so she's just selling i i I don't think necessarily a vendetta i just i guess maybe it's she doesn't want any sort of contact with her in the future i guess i could see that as to why she didn't want family to take her because then she would have memories and have to see her family gatherings i i guess i can understand that but good hell freaking there are other ways to do it yeah, at not, the same time, yeah. why not just give it to, like, your neighbor or something, you know? Well, I mean, we're talking about a child. I don't think you can really just give them away. No, I've tried. For adoption? <laughs> I did read in one, uh, one source that, and I don't know how true it is, because I do specifically remember it was only in, like, one source. <clears throat> but the woman that she met, the mentally unstable woman, she actually met her at an adoption facility she was trying to give up mary and they wouldn't for whatever reason they wouldn't take her and then they would not give this woman a child so from what i read that's where they met was when she was trying to put her up for adoption and she was just like oh you can't have one here i got one right here take her and then her sister went and got her back different day and age so i don't know how adoption centers work then but i kind of get the feeling nowadays if someone were to just say, hey, I can't have this child, no matter the age, someone, the system, would take them. I really hope so. Because this poor girl went through it. I, I think nowadays. We're too, we're too spoiled with the things that we have nowadays. Like baby drop boxes. I thought you were going to bring up the baby wipe warmer. And I was about to oh, say, like, look, wipe. she. <laughs> and baby <laughs> wipe warmers. I it's didn't have those. Tushy, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying I didn't have those growing up. I can guarantee my parents did not invest in something to keep my butt warm. I didn't have them either. And that is exactly why I gave them for to my daughter. Cause I was like, look, baby wipe warmer. I can afford this. And you Let's wonder why ahead. she's so spoiled. No, I was just no. talking about the baby drop boxes at hospitals and things. That's a thing. You just yeah. drop a baby in it. I mean, you don't drop them, you place them. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes. But I've never, where are they? Not that I'm asking oh. to get rid of my child. I'm going to keep her. I've just never seen these. I would have, there's a whole company that does them. And like, they, they're pretty crazy from what I've seen is like these drop boxes. They're like in fire stations, hospitals, that type of stuff. You open it and you put the baby in and then it locks on the outside so you can't like no one can come by and just open it and take a baby out a hospital staff member would be alerted that someone put a child in there or you know whatever and a lot of times it's not necessarily because you're giving up your child it could be because you are in danger and you're trying to protect your child so you're putting them in a safe place until th- the danger has passed um is the idea but yeah they have these whole contraptions for it that is wild i'm gonna have to google that later that's very interesting. I learned about it on TikTok. <laughs> Love TikTok. So TikTok brought that knowledge into my brain. Bonus. Also, we have wildly different algorithms on TikTok because 
I don't learn a lot of useful things. So Mary later said, later on in life, Mary said that Betty did, however, uh, start allowing and or encouraging her clients to sexually abuse Mary when she was only about four or five years old. I don't like this. Mm -hmm. I remember now why I don't like this. Uh, heartbreaking. This, oh, God. When Mary was a child, it was normal for kids to play outside by themselves or together as young as three years old. Like we said, different time. This is, I mean, this is way back in the day. So she grew up in a time of post-war redevelopment. So it was common for them to play in abandoned houses or partially demolished buildings, which I get that. That's the first place that I would go. That's an adventure. That sounds fun. Mary was known to have mood swings and bedwetting issues growing up. Her mother would frequently humiliate Mary after these accidents. Uh, one of the things that I read, which I don't see in my notes, was that when Mary would have an accident, her mother would rub her nose in it. And then she would take the mattress and put it out in the front yard for the whole neighborhood to see when she would wet the bed. What does rubbing her nose in it do for anyone? completely destroy that child's self-esteem i'd imagine like i don't even do that with dogs and you're gonna do mm -hmm. this to your child this is just horrible that sounds terrible so not surprisingly mary was said to have a horrible temperament other children in the area said in a documentary i watched on daily motion that mary could be fine one minute and then become aggressive quickly one woman said that as a nine-year-old she was scared of her and tried to keep her distance but there were times when Mary would approach them or somebody that they were playing with and you had to be really careful around her. She said that Mary was the, it, it, she wasn't somebody that you would turn your back on. Mary did have one friend and that's that second picture. Her neighbor, 13 year old Norma Joyce Bell, and they were not related. Multiple sources stated that Norma was a little slower than most kids her age. She was easily led and overpowered other students. Mary was always said to be the leader and often led Norma to do things that other children their age claimed she probably wouldn't do on her own. How old are they again? At this point in time, Mary is, I don't know. Do you have to math <laughs> it? We are now yeah. mathematicians, so. I, I, well, I couldn't find what age they met, but I believe Mary was between five and seven and norma was 13 so there was like a significant age difference between them okay some of her initial assaults we're talking about mary so some of mary's initial assaults included a teacher asking a little girl what happened to her face and being told that mary stubbed a cigarette butt out on it why did mary have a cigarette i don't know this was a we got 50s? it from her amazing mom okay not Fair surprising, point. honestly. Gold star mom here. Both of them. Gold star parents. You're taking notes, Amanda. On what not to do? Sure. Yes. Don't rub oh. her nose and pee. Don't give her whiskey. <laughs> Don't shake her. I have a whiteboard that I'm going to add it on eventually. You should put that on the background so we can just keep, <laughs> <laughs> keep it up there. Let me get my green screen back out. <laughs> Another time a boy was found wandering the streets, dazed and bleeding. He later told police that he was playing with Marianne Norma on top of an air raid shelter that was no longer being used. The boy said he was pushed off the building and fell to the ground. He didn't know who pushed him, but it was a seven-foot fall 
from the top of the air raid shelter to the ground. And it left the boy with a severe laceration on his head. No action was taken by police or any adults after this happened. That exact same day, there was a report that Mary and Norma approached three young girls playing in a sand pit. Norma pinned down one of the girls named Pauline. And Pauline is that third picture and she just looks cheeky and adorable. Mary, uh, excuse me, Norma pinned down Pauline while Mary grabbed her by the neck and started to strangle her. Pauline said that while holding her head with one hand, Mary started to force sand down her throat with the other hand. Ah. Norma jumped up after seeing this, seemingly terrified. And that is when Pauline was able to jump up and run home. So police were called about this incident, but nothing ever happened. Pauline later admitted that she was so scared that she didn't tell the police everything. She told them that Mary had tried to strangle her. But she left out the part about Mary shoving sand down her throat because she was afraid that Mary was going to come back for revenge. Mary is obviously a very troubled girl. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, like I said, I, I understand it based on what she went through. Ugh, just God, love her. And I'm sorry, Mary is 11 uh, around this time. I think I said five or six. I'm sorry. I was way off. She's 11. No, you said five or six or something when they met. Norma and her met. Okay, yeah. Around this time, she's between uh, 10 and 12, I think, is when all of this really starts getting serious. And that means that Norma was probably about 16 to 18? I'd say maybe 12 to 14 when all this happened and went on. Okay. Now we're going to revoke your mathematician skills because this isn't adding up. Well, I have a date coming up and that's how I knew. Well, you said that when they met. Yeah, you said when they met, they were about six years, seven years apart. Yeah, I was way off. Okay. Okay. It was hard to find like, because it was easy for me to find dates on all of this stuff that happened. But the three instances that I just talked about with the sand pit and the little boy that they pushed off the air raid shelter and then her stubbing a cigarette butt on that little girl's face. All this kind of just happened when they were in school and there wasn't any specific dates on that. Well, we're just talking about your age range, your age range for uh, Norma and Mary isn't adding up. Cause if you're saying that Mary was six or seven when they met and Norma was 13, that's like a seven year difference. But then when all of this was happening, Mary was 11. Then Norma's not aging. I'm sorry. Norma was about 13 when all this happened. Mm, so okay. Mary, yeah, Mary was about 11 and Norma was about 13. Okay. So really, I just suck at math. Mm-hmm. This is why you yeah, needed that nine trick. You are yeah. no longer part of the math mathematician crew. I'm perfectly okay with we, that. I don't know why y'all accepted me to begin with. <laughs> we are revoking your license to use the finger trick for nines. Bryce and I are officially going into the math pentathlon and you are not invited. <laughs> we do need a third. So let's, let's find a third. Is James good have at my math? Husband. Yeah. He's like really smart and all that stuff. So <laughs> look, I got you on English and science. Okay. I can help. He's... Yeah, no, we played Trivial Pursuit the other night. Just take him on all the subjects. Hey, James, you're on my team. I call dibs. <laughs> I knew you before, even Amanda. His, uh, English isn't even his first language, and he's better. Okay, so. 
<laughs> I'm just saying, James, me and you met before you met Amanda. So this is true. I call dibs. I'm like a little sister to you. This is your PSA that we are on a team. I'll be on the team too. Yeah, y'all can have James and I'll eat nachos in the audience while I'm babysitting my own child. Oh, crap. Okay, we're at this part of the story. So the fourth picture is this adorable little cherub, Martin Brown. Martin Brown was four years old. He does and look his, like he's Cupid. Does like he could be Cupid? Yes, like that face and that hair—adorable little cheeky cheek—and mm-hmm. his hair looks blonde, and it's just like super curly at the top, and it's so cute. He, yeah, he's, he looks exactly what I would envision Cupid to look like. Absolutely precious, and I bet he was so charming. Well, his mother described him as mischievous. He was tall for his age with curly blonde hair, blue eyes, and a cheeky face. And his mother also told about a time that Martin decided to have a swimming pool in his bedroom. So he filled up the bottom drawer with water and ended up flooding the room. (laughs) He's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So on Saturday, May 25th of 1968, Martin's mother got a call that Martin had had an accident. She made her way to the rundown house that he was found in and pushed her way through a group of people outside. And that's when she saw him in a man's arms, gray and cold. Not long after she laid eyes on him, Martin was scooped up by an ambulance and rushed off to the hospital. His body was found by three kids at about 3.30 p.m. He lay on his back with his arms stretched above his head and a pill bottle beside him. A few specks of blood and foam were found around his mouth. But other than that, there were no signs of violence, and that made it difficult to pinpoint a cause of death. However, Dr. Bernard Knight was able to rule out poisoning after an autopsy. So they really don't know what he died of. They just couldn't tell. Martin's mother had said that the girls would ask her how she was feeling or if she missed him. And she originally thought it was nice and that they cared about her. However, on the day of Martin's funeral, the girls came to her house and asked to see him. And she told them you know, Martin's dead. And Mary said to her, oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. And that is when Martin's mother slammed the door in their faces. Good. It's a little odd to say to a grieving mother when- To play devil's advocate, they're children. So they're curious. That's pretty natural by nature. Don't give me that look. I said I was playing devil's advocate. All I mean is just, they're going to be curious anyways but also i'd still slam the door in their face yeah like also read the room sweetheart like come on they're old enough that they know since there was no obvious cause of martin's brown martin brown's death the community blamed his death on the dangerous conditions of the area amid reconstruction newcastle residents marched as a form of complaint that the destruction and rebuilding wasn't being handled properly and (laughs) this next photo is a picture of mary bell photographed holding a banner at the front of that march i don't like it yeah i I don't like it at all only one day after martin brown was found dead mary celebrated her birthday by vandalizing a nursery with norma the pair broke in and tore up books overturned desks they smeared ink and paint around the place before escaping completely undetected they left four notes at the scene that were later confiscated by police and there's also a photo of two of those notes the notes read 
I'm just, they're littered with spelling errors. So I'm just going to read them the way they're supposed to be read. I murder so that I may come back. We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Fuck off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny. And I don't like that word, uh, but it is the homophobic F word slur. You are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martin. Go brown. You bet look there are murders about by Fanny and all same F word. You screws. That's the best I can read that. Uh, so okay. police. I need a translation. I understood the we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off you bastards. It's mm-hmm. the other two that I am struggling with comprehension on. Who is Fanny? Their rear end. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Wait, are they actually? No. <laughs> no. I have no idea who Fanny is. Uh, the only person that I know who they're referring to in these notes is Martin Brown. A lot of it, like especially that fourth one, I have no idea what most of that says or is supposed to say. And a lot of it is because like, I mean, you can look at them. We'll post them. This is a child's handwriting. It's not good penmanship. And the spelling is lacking. I know in one sentence, uh, they spell fuck F-U-C-H. Foosh. Foosh off. We murder. Foosh off. I like that. Foosh off. (laughs) <laughs> the handwriting looks like it's done by two different people, right? Do we know who wrote which one? We don't know who wrote which one, but we do know that they both wrote the notes together. It wasn't specifically one of them. Also, if they're about 11, 13, somewhere in that age range, shouldn't their penmanship look better than this? I don't have kids, so I don't really know, but I feel like... I mean, I feel like it should be, but I understand that like they didn't have lines and they were also I mean I guess I was in what seventh grade when I was 12 so I feel like it should be better it it definitely should now that I think about it I mean my stepson is nine and he doesn't have the best penmanship but it's better than this you know what maybe they were just future doctors doctors have shit penmanship okay well I'm glad she didn't make it to doctorhood that's all I'm saying (laughs) not a doctor I would go to that you're aware of not a doctor i would purposely go to and i've been to some pretty <laughs> been to some pretty shitty doctors gastroenterologists but <laughs> so <laughs> like i said the police they took these notes in for evidence um and then they ruled the whole thing a prank i don't like that they should have at least done like investigations i mean but i guess they did investigate Martin's death and nothing was concluded, but they should have questioned at least Norma and Mary. But I don't, and I, did they know it was Norma and Mary that broke in and vandalized this nursing home? Yeah. Not at this time. No. They eventually found out. And I guess I can understand too, since it wasn't obvious how Martin Brown died. So if they're getting these letters saying like, oh, well, we killed him, and they're, you know, literally looking at the body and they can't find a cause of death, then. I guess I can kind of see that train of thought. I still don't like it. Two months later, on July 31st, 1968, three-year-old Brian Howe was outside his home. His parents last saw him playing with his siblings, the family dog, and Mary and Norma. When he never returned home, concerned relatives and neighbors searched the streets for Brian. 
It wasn't until 11.10 p.m. that his body was discovered between two large concrete blocks on a piece of ground referred to by locals as the Tin Lizzie. Police found the body semi-spread eagle and half-naked. There was a poor attempt at hiding the body under some grass and weeds. His hair had been cut and there were clumps of it scattered around him. There were also punctures on his legs and on his genitals, bruises and scratches on his neck, and a crude attempt to carve the letter M in his stomach. At his feet were a broken pair of scissors suspected to have been used to cut the hair and puncture the body post-mortem. Gray and maroon fibers were also found on his clothes and shoes that didn't match any clothing in the Howe household. The coroner concluded that Brian had succumbed to strangulation as the killer held his nostrils shut with one hand and choked him with the other. He had been deceased for roughly seven and a half hours. The coroner was settled, was unsettled, excuse me, at the small amount of force that was used to commit the murder. And because of this, he was convinced that the killer was also a child. The coroner stated, I gained the impression at the time that the person responsible had to have been rather young because of the gentleness of the death. And I went the- on to the last picture. He is super cute. Yes. He also looks like he could be a Cupid. I was going to say, you thought that Martin looks like Cupid. I think that this little kid honestly looks like Cupid. The same little chubby cheeks. Poor baby. I think Martin could pass as a Cupid. But now that I look at him, you guys um, remember, what is it, A Midsummer Night? That Shakespeare? Um, Midsummer Night's Dream? Um, one of the characters is Puck, if I'm referencing the right one. I think yes. Martin Brown could be Puck instead. I can see that. And then um, Brian Howe is Cupid. He is, they're, they're so darling. God, they're so precious. Because of the similarities of the cases of Martin Brown and Brian Howe, police reopened the Howe case or excuse me, reopened the Martin Brown case and began to reinvestigate. They announced to the community that they were looking for a child. Over 100 detectives worked the case and they questioned more than 1,200 children. The detectives heard multiple statements that Mary and Norma Bell were last seen playing with Brian before he was found dead. Many children also told police of how scared they were of Mary, how they were attacked by her, and how she was bragging about strangling a boy on the playground. So obviously they go and investigate Norma, or excuse me, interview Norma. And during her initial interview, she seemed nervous, while Mary, on the other hand, was described as observant and reserved. Both of the girls were said to be evasive and contradictory. They admitted to playing with Brian the day he died, but they never saw him after lunch. Mary was said by police to have been obviously present every time they addressed the public. She was reported to have stood out as she pushed her way to the front of the crowd and hung on every word while she was learning about what was happening in the cases. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say either she was very, very curious, which is odd for a child of her age, or I should say teenager of her age, or she was just hanging on to every word because she wanted to know if she was a suspect. And she mm-hmm. actually did it. Yeah, that's what kind of originally one of the detectives, he uh, he noticed that. And that's what kind of set him off. Aside from all of the kids telling them like, hey, she's terrifying. She chokes people. Was her the way she was acting. Finally, police decided that they had to talk to Mary Bell. Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson of the Newcastle Police, along with Larry Lagan, who was the lead inspector on the case, went to her home. But they were turned away by Billy Bell 
He refused to let the officers talk to Mary and threatened to sick his Alsatian dog on them if they didn't leave. And in case anyone was wondering what an Alsatian is, I'm sorry, I'm taking your glory here, Amanda. I'm calling dibs on this. It's a German shepherd, right? It is a German shepherd. Yeah. Um, Great, right? You made her lose her place. You're so I thought she was going to glaze over what an Alsatian dog was. And I thought it was a very important plot twist (laughs) that we know that they're German (laughs) shepherds. Well, I was just scrolling down because now I'm skipping that whole bullet. Anyway, yes, they are German shepherds. Luckily, investigators found a nine-year-old boy that witnessed Brian Howe being murdered. Uh, The boy was also at the Tin Lizzie, and he told police that Mary told Howe that he had a sore throat and began to massage it for him. Her grip gradually tightened, and eventually she strangled the boy, which is just fucking terrifying. Sorry, how would she know if he had a sore throat? Well, she's the one giving it to him. I'm pretty sure it's a lucky guess. After hearing this, Harvey Burroughs, Detective Chief Superintendent, gave orders to bring Mary Bell and Norma Bell in for questioning. Dr. Monica Robotham, a child psychologist, assisted police with the interviews because the girls were so young. She later stated that Mary couldn't seem to relax, and it was because she knew she was suspected of the murders. Mary was said to have constantly denied her charges. She was described to have been preoccupied as well, often asking where her mother was, if she was coming to see her, and if her dog was okay. I guess that'd be me too. I'd be like, how are my dogs? Are they fine? Or did they get fed? Did yeah, they that get would walked? be me as like a 30-year-old. So this 11-year-old, like, I get it. She impressed police during her interviews with her ability to deflect their questions. Burroughs described her as having a computer brain saying that she would not only answer a question before they were even done talking, but continue talking and answer four or five other questions before the police were even able to ask them. And this is at 11 years old, so it is kind of impressive. She's a intelligent, I'll give her that. And that's what her teachers had said, too. Like, she just seemed to be a very bright, intelligent little girl. She just unfortunately had a shitty upbringing. Mary did describe seeing an eight-year-old local boy playing with Brian the afternoon of July 31st, and she also claimed to have seen the boy hitting Brian. She recounted seeing the boy covered in grass and weeds with a small pair of scissors in his hand. She told police, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with him. One leg was broken or bent. When she told police this, she accidentally incriminated herself because the police never told the public about the broken scissors. So they already knew like, hmm, okay, there's no way you would have known this. And then when they checked the boy's alibi, the little boy that she blamed was witnessed by numerous people to have been at Newcastle International Airport the afternoon of Brian's death. On August 4th, The parents of Norma Bell called police and reported that their daughters wanted to confess. Daughter, just one, excuse me, sorry. Detective Chief Inspector Dobson made his way to their home where Norma told him that Mary had taken her to the Tin Lizzie to show her Brian's body. She told Norma about the broken scissors and how she had carved the M on his stomach with a razor blade before hiding it at the crime scene. She also told Norma how much she had enjoyed choking Brian. So after this, Norma led police to the crime scene and showed them exactly where the razor blade was hidden. She also drew a picture describing where the wounds were on the stomach that matched the ones previously described by the coroner. 
The next day, police visited Mary in her home after hearing Norma's confession, where Mary told them, you're trying to brainwash me. I'll get a solicitor to help me out of this. What's a solicitor? A lawyer. I had to Google that. Oh, I'm not alone. Okay. Yeah, no. (laughs) I mean, by context clues, I thought that's what it was, but I just wanted to be sure. Norma was questioned again later that day and made a full statement where she admitted being present when Mary had strangled Brian. She explained that the three children were alone on the tin Lizzie when Mary seemed to go all funny. Mary pushed Brian into the grass and tried to strangle him when she told Norma, my hands are getting thick, take over. This is when Norma fled, leaving Mary alone with Brian. Not long after Norma's second confession, police were able to match the gray fibers found on Brian and Martin's clothes to a wool dress of Mary's and the maroon fibers found on Brian's shoes to a skirt owned by Norma. On August 7, 1968, Brian Howe was laid to rest in a local cemetery. His ceremony was attended by over 200 people, including Detective Chief Inspector Dobson. Mary Bell immediately caught the attention of Dobson as the funeral procession began. He stated that Mary stood laughing and rubbing her hands upon seeing the coffin leave the house. He later said that it was that moment that he thought to himself, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one. At 8 p.m. that same day, both Mary and Norma were formally charged with the murder of Brian Howe. Mary was said to have responded with, that's all right by me. Norma, however, immediately started crying and said, I'll never, I'll I'll pay you back for this. Mary soon produced a written statement that stated she was there when Brian died, but that Norma had been the one to commit the murder. She also admitted to breaking into the nursery with Norma the day after Martin Brown's death, where they destroyed the property and left the four notes. Not long after being arrested, both girls underwent psychological evaluations. Norma was revealed to be intellectually delayed and as a submissive girl who easily shows emotion. Mary was examined by four psychiatrists who described her as a bright, cunning girl who was prone to mood swings. She was said to become suddenly sullen and introspective and possess a defensive nature. They concluded that she did not suffer from any mental disorders, but from a psychopathic personality disorder. Dr. David Westbury later stated in a report written for the Director of Public Prosecutions, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial and graciation manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. And ingratiation is also something I had to Google, and it's just a psychological technique where someone tries to influence a person by making themselves more likable. So kind of sucking up to people to get them to do what you want kind of thing. Evidence continued to stack against the girls when the police went to her school to speak with the staff. A teacher who had been going back over their school books turned in a paper Mary had written describing Martin Brown's body being found. This is when the police were given the drawing and accompanying story and noticed that she had drawn the pill bottle next to Martin's body. Another detail that was never released to the public. And you can see that drawing in the next photo. And you can also see the penmanship that goes with this picture is way better. Yeah, completely different than... Mm -hmm. The letters, yeah. More what you mm-hmm. would expect from an 11, 12, 13-year-old. Plus, it's in cursive, too. hmm And the... Lost art. Yeah. 
Mary and Norma were officially charged with the murder of Brian Howe on August 8th and sent to separate remand homes. And that's just a British institution where children between the ages of 8 and 16 were temporarily detained instead of jail while awaiting their trial, which took place on December 5th in 1968 in the Crown Court. So many people claim that the Crown Court wasn't a suitable place to deal with children as only the most seriously, oh, excuse me, serious offenses are covered there. However, because of the severity of the charges, it was deemed necessary to try Mary and Norma in front of an open court. Both girls' counsel protested to allow them to remain anonymous because of their age, but Justice Ralph Cusack waived those rights and allowed the media to publicize their names, ages, and photographs. Can't only the parents do that? Uh, I'm not really sure because this was a different time in a different country. Okay, fair enough. I still don't think even nowadays, I don't think it's up to the parents. I think it's probably up to the courts. And because, I mean, there are children. So like the Slenderman child killer. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, those two. Yeah, their rights. I don't know if their parents waive those rights, but I would assume if I were a parent, I wouldn't waive their rights one way or another. But everyone Mm -hmm. knows their names. I don't know what off the top of my head, but I could Google it. Yeah, I think one just got free. Oh, really? Not too long ago. Yeah. But I'm sure we'll cover that case and we'll talk all about it because that was another, oh, God, that one was rough. Yeah, please do because I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll do it next time for you then. Prosecutor Rudolph Lyons, QC, which is Queen's Counsel, and that's just the lawyer who is senior counsel in court cases, opened the case at 11.30 a.m. with an opening statement that lasted for six hours. He told the jury that they faced an unhappy and distressing task because of the nature of the murders and the ages of the girls charged. He went on to explain that in spite of the age difference, Mary was the more dominant of the two girls, but that they acted in unison and were equally responsible. He stated both girls killed the boys solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder, and that both girls knew what they did was wrong and what the results would be. Both girls claimed they were innocent and blamed each other for the killings. Norma testified in her own defense and denied any responsibility for the murder of either child. She did, however, admit in cross-examination that she knew Mary was violent and had a history of attacking other children. She also admitted that they had spoken about attacking and killing small boys and girls. She said that Mary had showed her how children could be killed and that as Mary started to attack Brian Howe, she could have told another group of boys playing near them but didn't. However, she never touched the boy herself. Mary also testified in her own defense She denied Norma's accusations and instead claimed that although she had seen the body of Martin Brown, she had never hurt him. She told the court that she and Norma Norma asked Martin's mother to see his body as the result of them daring one another and not wanting to be a chicken. When Mary was asked about Brian Howe, she said that Norma had been the one who strangled him and that she was just standing and looking. I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down. She claimed that Norma had coerced Brian into laying down with the promise of candy before using her bare hands to strangle him while Mary tried to stop her. She also stated that she didn't tell the police out of fear and loyalty to her friend. I mean, at least she's a loyal friend. Like, I would love to have a friend that would stick up for me and be like, oh, no, 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 she did not murder her husband. But now she's going back on that. So Yeah, now she's literally trying to get her friend thrown in jail. That's because there's something I mean. I would hope that friend would be like, oh yeah, Bryce wasn't involved. I'm caught. Sorry. Sorry. I would do that for you. Thank you. You're welcome. 
I would not. If you killed someone in front of me, I would go straight to the police and report it. As long as you didn't come chasing after me with an axe. What if he deserved it? Because Cody, sometimes I could strangle him. I would never, but there are days where I wonder. There's just days where we enact it out in our head sometimes. If you were acting in self-defense, I would still go to the police and I would still make a statement. If you were acting in a fit of rage, I would still go to the police. If you killed someone, I would go to the police. So make him hit you first. You know what? If he swings at me, I've just got the dogs to take care of it because they don't like it when he when he like does the tickles or what they think he's attacking me, even though he's not like if I scream loud enough, the dogs will come and bite ben, or come and bite Cody. Yeah. Maple starts growling when James like he doesn't even have to be upset with me if he's upset at something and he's telling me about it. She starts growling, which doesn't help because then he gets upset at her and then she growls louder and it's just a whole big thing. Well, hey, at least you know she's got your back. She's that loyal friend for you. Oh, yeah. She's like, Norma's mother took the stand to tell of a time a few months prior to Brian's murder when her husband, Norma's father, walked in on Mary trying to strangle Norma's younger sister and only let go when her husband physically stopped her. Norma's lawyer closed by telling the court that there was no evidence that his client had committed the murders other than Mary's word. He asked that the jury suppress their outrage and dispel any idea that both girls have to pay for the actions of one. Mary's lawyer chose to close by telling of her heartbreaking childhood and dysfunctional family, which blurred the lines between fantasy and reality in her mind. He also noted that psychiatrist's conclusion that Mary had a personality disorder caused by both genetic and environmental factors. After nine days, the trial finally ended on December 17th. The jury deliberated for three hours and 25 minutes before ruling to acquit Norma Bell of all charges. Norma clapped her hands in excitement when she heard this. Mary, on the other hand, was cleared of murder but convicted of two counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility because of her evidence, because of the evidence of her abusive childhood. Mary, her mother, and her grandmother all cried upon hearing the ruling. Mary was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is just until it's deemed she's safe to be released, which kind of sucks because you're literally just in jail and prison until somebody tells you. Like, you don't even have a time period to look forward to. So at that point, they could just assume life. You could assume life, yeah. They struggled with where to send Mary because she was just an 11-year-old girl. She was deemed too dangerous to send to children's institutions Mental hospitals weren't equipped to deal with her, and they didn't think it was right to send her to prison. So she was originally sent to a remand home in Durham. Then she was transferred to a different home in South Norwood before finally ending up in Red Bank Secure Unit in early 1969 at the age of 11. Out of 24 inmates ranging in age from 15 to 20, she was the only girl. Mary later claims to have been sexually assaulted beginning at the age of 13 by multiple inmates and one staff member. Although that specific allegation was considered unreliable, the staff was still changed afterwards. At least they changed the staff regardless. Yeah, it's one of those things that makes me wonder, like, you know, if you're saying that that allegation was unreliable, why did you change the staff? It, but I know it could go either way, you know. Just makes me feel like maybe they're covering something up. I mean, I was just going to say she was abused. She was sexually abused 
by her mother's friends when she was what, like four years old? And now not friends, clients, people she didn't even know. Yeah. 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 Her mother's clients. And just the, I mean, and now she's getting like sexually abused again. Also, they could have just fired the dude because of the publicity that it put on the, was it a hospital? Uh, It was a remand center, kind of like a juvenile detention place. Yeah. I mean, they could have just fired him due to the publicity that it put on them, the bad publicity that it put on them. Well, they didn't necessarily fire him. They just switched the staff. They moved him somewhere, whether it be to a different facility or a different area of the same facility. She got new people looking after her. At the age of 16, she was transferred into a secure wing of HM Prison Style in Cheshire. She applied for parole there, but was denied. She was transferred again three years later in 1976 to the Open Court, excuse me, to the Moore Court Open Prison. Just 15 months after transferring, she and another prisoner, Annette Priest, escaped and spent several days with two men in Blackpool. They visited amusement parks and stayed in numerous hotels where Mary used the alias Mary Robinson. Mary was arrested at the home of one of the two men on September 13th, even after a failed attempt to disguise herself by dyeing her hair blonde. Annette was found a few days later and both girls were brought back to the prison. Mary would later tell the media that she escaped so she could lose her virginity. (laughs) And the next picture is a picture of one of the newspapers around this time. And she was roughly 16 years old in that photo. So was she not raped when she was sexually abused? Or is this just kind of like on her own terms, losing her virginity? They never specified, and I didn't look for it, uh, what specifically happened to her when she was abused, either when she was a child or when she was incarcerated. So I would assume it was on her own terms. Betty Bell visited her daughter a lot in prison, much to the staff's dismay. Mary always looked forward to seeing her mom, but was described as disturbed when she left, and she would revert back to being aggressive and acting out, regardless of how far she had come to turn her life around. For much of the time during her incarceration, Betty capitalized on her daughter's fame. She sold stories of Mary to the press and gave reporters letters and poems that she would encourage Mary to send her. Mary would go on to say later that her mother wanted her to know how much she suffered being the mother of a murderer and even once told her, Jesus was only nailed to the cross. I'm being hammered. Four years after the killings, Betty Bell was part of a TV interview. She claimed, oh God, this is rich. She claimed she didn't know where Mary got her aggression from, but eventually admitted in that interview that her and her husband may have influenced her. And I did read somewhere too that a lot of the doctors in the hospitals or detention centers, wherever she was at, at that specific time, they actually didn't want her mom to come see her, but they couldn't really stop her for any reason. But the doctors and the nurses hated when her mom would come in because it was just... It kind of sucked having to see Mary like come so far and then just go, you know, one step forward, two steps back. So Mary eventually sent her mother a letter blaming her for ruining her life and refused to contact or accept visitations from her mother anymore after that point. 
Mary Bell was released from prison in 1980 at the age of 23, despite allegations that she never admitted to killing Martin and Brian. She was granted an amenity with a new name and started a new life. She had a daughter four years after her release and even contributed to a book called Crisis Unheard, The Story of Mary Bell, where she opened up against her childhood and the abuse she suffered by her mother. The government tried to block the publication of the book because they were outraged at the thought of Mary being paid for contributing to this. Regardless of that, she was paid a reported 50,000 pounds, which in 1998 was $68,425. Today, that would translate to about $109,010.82. And she was paid that for contributing to the book. But after hearing this, the press was able to discover where she was living and they chased them out of their home in 1998. That was about the time her daughter was 14. And that was the first time her daughter learned of her mother's past and what she did. They were able to escape by running from the house with sheets over their heads and being driven to a safe house by undercover officers. In 2001, Mary Bell won a legal battle, allowing her to maintain her anonymity after a judge ruled that the 46-year-old Mary and her partner had settled down and raised her daughter to be a charming and well-balanced girl. The ruling also granted her daughter anonymity and later her granddaughter. Good for her for turning her life around, but also I wouldn't want to live next to a murderer. Yeah, it's kind of tough because I, I get that. Like, I get that she completely changed her life and turned it all around. But at the same time, like, you, 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 you killed two little boys when you were a little girl. Okay, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but... At the same time, think of how traumatizing her life was, you know? And I mean, when she got out of that, she wasn't the same person that she was when she was living that life. And I think you're right what she said at the beginning, that it is really a big case for nature versus nurture. Because if you are, if you're treated that way when you're a child, you're going to treat other people that way. And that's just how life is and that's just what life throws at you but good for her that she completely turned her life around and her daughter's life around did you say partner is she is she married to a woman or is it a man i'm just curious no it was a man uh but when i read this i don't know if this has changed since because after that second grant from the judge, uh, nobody's been able to find her since then and really track her down like they were the first time. Uh, so at the time, her and her partner were not married, but it was a man. It's just oh, okay. not the man that she had her daughter with. Okay. And there was one more photo of Betty and Mary. If you would like to put a face to a turd, Betty is in that photo. I can honestly see that if Mary dyed her hair blonde, she would look a lot like her mother based on that picture. Because I know that she said when she escaped, she dyed her hair blonde in an attempt to not be recognized. They do look really similar. But that is the story of Mary Flora Bell. Well, thank you for that story, Amanda. You're very welcome. Now I would like to forget about it forever. Are y'all ready for... The best paranormal story that you've ever heard? 
Yes, because I love this story. I saw it when I was getting on the drive and I got so excited. I did not see it, so I don't know which one it is, but I'm ready. It's a good one. Don't it's worry, really I'll explain it to you. Panties. What? what? Hold on to your panties. Oh, <laughs> you said mayonnaise. I was like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? I thought you said mayonnaise. Hold on to your mayonnaise. <laughs> That's my favorite. So Confused. I was like, what the hell is happening? Oh, hold on to your mayonnaise. What Please hold on to your mayonnaise. What in the southern? <laughs> I am ready, Brie. The site of a gruesome, unsolved 1912 murder in which six children and two adults had their skulls completely crushed by the axe of an unknown killer. This is the story of the axe murder house and the hauntings along with it. In the early 1900s, Felisca, Iowa was a Midwestern town with approximately 2,500 population and was flourishing with new businesses. In 1912, the only public-funded armory in Iowa was built in Villisca. The company assisted in World War I, World War II, the 1916 Mexican expedition, and even the Korean and Vietnam Wars. But even with all of that surrounding the town, the unsolved murders of 1912 remain part of Villisca's past and continues to haunt the town to this day. In 1994, Darwin and Martha Lynn from Corning, Iowa, purchased the town and restored it to its original 1912 glory pre-murder, as it previously was in the same condition post-murder. Later, it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places and opened for tours. And y'all, I know this is my week for a paranormal story, but I have to disclose I have to disclose the gruesome details of what happens before I get to the hauntings in this murder. It was early Sunday morning on June 9th, 1912, when Lena and Ina Stillinger left their home for church. They planned on having lunch with their grandmother after the morning service and spend the day with her. But the girls were invited at the last minute to spend the night at their friend's house instead, Catherine Moore. The Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church was an annual event that the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters participated in. According to VelliscaIowa.com, the program ended around 9.30 p.m. and the Moore family and Stillinger sisters walked home from church and entered their home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. At around 5 a.m. on Monday morning, June 10th, Mary Peck Mary Peckham, the Moore's next-door neighbor, woke up and decided to fold her laundry outside on a clothesline and noticed that around 7 a.m., the Moore home was just still. There wasn't any usual activity, and usually around this time at 7 a.m., the Moores are out doing chores and stuff around their home. When Mary went to knock on the door and received no response, she attempted to open it, but found it locked from the inside. This is when she called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, Josiah being the one of the men who were killed, the man of the Moore house. That's what I was trying to say. Thus starts the investigation of the Axe Murder House. It is believed that sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., an unknown person entered the Moore home and brutally murdered everyone in the house. Some of the facts, according to VelliscaIowa.com, were 
that eight people had been murdered, presumably with an axe found in the house. The axe was found in the room occupied by the Sillinger sisters. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. The axe also belonged to Josiah Moore. A pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table, as well as a plate of uneaten food, and all the doors were locked. So now that you know kind of the backstory, we'll get into the hauntings. Martha Lynn, the current owner, is quoted as saying, I feel there's something there. I don't know if the murderer is still here, but things have happened that aren't exactly calming. While cleaning one day, the house guide reported hearing someone walk upstairs and shut a dresser door. His initial thought was someone had broken in, so he walked up the stairs to confront whoever it was. He is quoted to have saying, so I got up to kick this guy out. Nobody's there. I talked to my buddies afterwards and they're all saying, oh, houses make noise. Like, I'm fully aware of what a footstep is at this point in my life. I'm not a complete idiot. So that's what kind of got me started staying the night. I like him. <laughs> I do like him. I'm not an idiot. Gee, I know what a footstep sounds like. But then again, I also think about in my house, I hear a creak and I go, it's a ghost. What is that? <laughs> no, hands down. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I'm pretty sure some of mine are ghosts, in fact. So in my defense. Maybe we should do an investigation on your house, Bryce. No, because then oh. nothing will happen. It only happens when I'm home alone. That's when you're on, like, the most high alert, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's the funny part, is I try very hard to be like, oh, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> the tour guide has also witnessed objects moving, chairs rocking, and has even heard full conversations upstairs. Only when he was home alone. But he's also never reportedly seen a ghost. Daily Iowan reported on the house after doing their own research aka actually going to the house and spending the night, the woman who wrote the article about this encounter, Madison, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Lottenshine, Lottenshine, is quoted to have said the following. It was still daylight. Hauser, or the U.S. tour guide, had left, and the DI crew was capturing footage and taking notes of the two upstairs bedrooms in the attic where the killer supposedly hid out until the family and friends were asleep. The team headed down the step, with myself heading down last. Right before I reached the bottom, I heard footsteps behind me. Confused, I whirled around, thinking someone from the DI had come behind me, but no one was there. From the where had followed them? From, so, the way that the house is set up is there are two bedrooms and then there's an attic and so on the second floor she was headed down from the steps and she heard footsteps and when she turned around nothing was there okay i thought you said from the di and i was very confused oh no because <laughs> i was like the di that's a thing in utah but i don't think that's anywhere else yeah, no, uh, DI refers to Daily Iowan, Daily Iowa with an N at the end. The Daily Iowan also reported, quote, using a twist turn on flashlight, we attempted to ask if any spirits were in the house by having them turn the flashlight off to no effect. However, when the light was being used for its intended purpose, Sitting untouched on a table while the group spoke, the light changed in intensity with no one touching it. 
End quote. Ooh, I don't like that. Mm-mm. Lori F. wrote a review of the house on TripAdvisor and is quoted as the following. Found this place while en route to another investigation. Had to stop and do the tour. In a short time we were there, we recorded activity on film, audio, and with our, bo- with our own bodies. Some were touched, balls rolled across the floor in the parlor, and the upstairs closet would open and close when asked. It would open and close? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that was only something that I got off of TripAdvisor, so I can't really, you know, ask her about it. But I assume what she meant was that when she asked, you know, is there a ghost in my presence or whatever, the ghost responded with opening and closing the doors. Well, they might have been directly asking, can you open that door? Okay, can you close that door? We're trying to prove your presence. Yeah. Or just like, hey, my hands are full. Can you grab that door, please? (laughs) And that ghost is like, bro, I got you. Yeah. Many people, including paranormal investigator Chris Dedman and Hauser, who is the tour guide, is the tour guide have reported to have felt a negative energy or a dark entity surrounding the house as well as inside the house itself. Some people have also reported the feeling of being accompanied by someone when entering the house by themselves. Travel Channel did their own investigation of this house and said that a male voice came through on a ghost box recording responding to the question of who's with you and something saying back, Reverend Kelly. Now, Reverend Kelly was said to be the last person to see the Moore family and the Sillinger sisters alive because they were coming home from that church this, that evening. He was a prime suspect in the murder case, and according to Roy Marshall, a retired law enforcement officer and recorded saying on the Travel Channel investigation of this house, the Reverend actually confessed to the murder, but the jury did not believe his confession. Huh? Yeah. And Roy is quoted to have saying that he gave graphic details about it too. But jury did not believe his confession. And Roy is also quoted to have saying that the jury must have just been corrupt. I would say. So this guy is straight up like, yeah, I did this. I'm sorry. I feel horrible. And then gave them all of these details. And the jury is like, hogwash. Well, I don't know if he said, you know, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. I just know that he gave graphic details about the murder in the house. And I know that he was a traveling priest, but I'm not sure where he was traveling to or what he was doing. So every guilty party ever wants that jury. That's all (laughs) I'm going to say. Every party that has ever admit to a crime wants that jury. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Dedman said that when saying, quote, I command you to tell me who you are, someone said Legion back. And he explains this to mean there are many. You can fight one, but there will always be another to take its place. No. He also says, quote, I got up and started walking out of the house. Whatever was standing there was not playing, and it literally knocked the breath out of me. I couldn't talk because I was out of a because I was out of breath. One of his associates, Roland Sains, of the Midway Paranormal Society, said, quote, he was hunched over, saying, I feel like I just got hit by a baseball bat. Chris continued to say that he checked his back and, quote, 
There were three claw marks that went down my back and one that swipes to the right, forming the letter L. By the way, y'all can look at all of the pictures in the drive. I apologize. But that last picture is the picture on Travel Channel of his back. Oh, good. I've been looking at them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is chilling. The L. Like when I look at it, it's just. And what makes it worse is going down, there are three scratch marks. Former residents, and this is all on the Travel Channel um, video that they posted, but former residents Linda Cloud and Patricia Williamson have reported hearing little girls crying and talking. The Travel Channel tends to go back and forth between one person explaining conversation and another person explaining the same conversation, but, you know if one person didn't, like, include details or whatever. But Linda and Patricia explain this story. Our dad always liked to sharpen his own knives. He was honing the knife away from him, like so, making a hand motion like this. And then all of a sudden, he went like this, making a hand motion as if you were sharpening a knife on whatever you used to sharpen knives on, on top of a counter, and her hand takes a sharp downturn. It looked like there was a pressure on his hand and just turned in his hand and stabbed him himself. Uh, uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, my ghost. When Travel Channel asks the house to speak to him about Linda, with Linda in the room, there is a voice muttering the words, Where is she? Played I don't back like that house. either. No. It, it gets weirder. Oh, good. That's just what we wanted to hear. (laughs) Patricia also walked out early in the interview because she felt extremely uncomfortable being back in that house. And honestly, you could really feel how afraid she felt because her hands were never still. They were always touching each other or rubbing them together. Her voice trembled when she spoke inside the house and she was just sweating. I mean, she looked terrified to be back in the house and presumably well because of the hauntings. But yeah. And what had happened in that house just originally. Travel Channel planted four X's in the house, of which are said to have the most activity. And this is a full quote. The first X was in the downstairs cellar where they see shadow people and hear growlings all the time. The next X was placed in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were brutally murdered by an axe. They say they hear girls in there crying all the time. The next X was in the upstairs attic where the suspected killer was said to be hiding out before he murdered the entire family and the neighbor girls. The next X was where the four kids of the Moore family were brutally murdered. End quote. And I'm not really sure what Travel Channel meant by saying, quote, they. I assume they meant Hauser, Chris, Roland, Linda, Patricia, all of those people, and other people who investigated the house, but who knows. Now, during this paranormal investigation, they brought in a retired law enforcement officer, as I said previously, named Roy Marshall, as well as the suspected murder weapon. The axe was actually taken from the house by police enforcement, and 
it is currently kept in a museum that's close by and Travel Channel took this to try to get more activity out of the house. Roy is said to be a skeptic from the start and they said that multiple times so he doesn't really think that the house is actually haunted. But he is a retired law enforcement officer who is currently trying to just find out what exactly happened on this case because it's still an unsolved murder. They recorded different sessions and nothing came back for any of them except the fourth and final recording that Roy points out and he says that he remembered this conversation thoroughly but did not recognize a voice that was found to have said, quote, I killed six kids, end quote. Whatever is on the recording, it seems to be a man that is out of breath, as if he just actually killed six kids, possibly with an axe. I don't like it. Hey, if we're going to go to a haunted house, let's go to that one. Yes. It gets you better. said this was where? Indiana? Illinois? Iowa? I think it was Iowa, because it was Iowan. Okay. Yeah. I know it was something with an I, so I was just going to go through all of them, apparently. Iowa, I can't... No, wait, no, it's... Illinois, Illinois. Indiana, Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Alabama. Yeah, I know, I I was going to actually have to sing it myself. (laughs) They also caught on camera EVP footsteps approaching a door being slammed shut randomly. So... After analyzing the EVP, they used what was called a, quote, spirit box. And they explained this to be used to, quote, scan different radio frequencies a quarter second on each station. So that means that it's next to near impossible to hear a full phrase, a sentence, or even a word. But it's supplying a steady stream of white noise, and through these frequencies, it's said that spirits can speak. End quote. With this, a man replied no to the question of, are you scared of us? And when they told the spirits, tell me what your name is, something replied with Lena. They then asked, are you here, Lena? And something replied with, want to play? It sounded well, like that's a creepy as shit. A child. No, I do not. I do. Wanna I do not want to play at all. I want to live. That's what I want to do. Sounded like a child. And so, okay, that's that, worse. Yeah. Well, keep keep in mind that, I mean, yes, the children spirits could be bad as well, but they're innocent. They were all brutally beaten. Yeah, but the last child that I played with threw up in my mouth, so. So she's got a traumatizing experience (laughs) and a valid reason to not like children. But it is interesting that she said her name was Lena and somebody scratched an L into this guy's back. But was that for Lena or for Legion? What if it's the Legion of Lena? It's the Lena Legion! I was honestly thinking that it was for Legion, but it could be for sure. And keep in mind that Lena was one of these Stillinger girls who was murdered in this house. Here's my thing with that is a D-mom could just be like, yeah, sure, I'm Lena today. Is your cat in the room with you? Yes, dude, yes. Simba just opened the door. I just saw the door open and I was like, all right, it's Legion or it's Lena. I don't care. It's whatever you want. We're not going to breeze. Nope. <laughs> They then asked, are you a little kid who plays here? What's your name? Something replied with Paul. 
Now, I didn't get into much detail about the Moore family, but Paul was a five-year-old boy who was also brutally murdered in the house. The paranormal investigators of Travel Channel then walk up the stairs and say, quote, I demand you to tell me what your name is. And something replied with, everyone's fine. Bullshit, everyone's fine. As Travel Channel puts it, quote, this was clearly a different voice than the children's we were hearing downstairs telling us we were now in the presence of a different spirit, end quote. The voice that said everyone's fine sounded much deeper, as if it were a man. They then asked, give us a name. What is the murderer's name? A voice replied with, Andy. Andy Sawyer was another prime suspect in the murder case. The day after the incident, on June 11, 1912, he told his employer just these crazy mutterations of the murder that had happened. And Travel Channel says that this was followed by several suspicious relevant actions. His employer's son witnessed Andy Sawyer suddenly jump up and say to himself, quote, I will cut your goddamn heads off. And at the same time, Andy made hitting motions as if he were actually cutting someone, cutting something with an axe. Now back to the hauntings. At this point, the paranormal team is split up. One person was downstairs, two people upstairs. The team upstairs reported to have heard laughing when asked questions about the murder weapon and the location. The person, and this is all on the spirit box. The person downstairs asked if someone could tell him who hacked them up with an axe, and that's a direct quote. And a voice replied, they're around upstairs. Meanwhile, upstairs, this crazy motherfucker legit sets the axe up against a wall so that he's lying down right underneath it so literally anything like a fucking gust of wind could potentially knock it over and so the axe was here he was laying down on the ground up against like the axe was up against a wall like literally something such as a gust of wind could have just bam i'm sure it wasn't a sharpened axe though i'm sure it was a dull blade well it was the axe that was that was presumably used in the murder so it was still probably a dull blade at that point. Yeah. Your cat just scared the shit out of me. Right? I'm gonna need hit Simba's calm the hell down, sir, please, sir. Hey, hey baby. Hey. Hey, baby. He then says, quote, show me that you're still alive, that you're still hurting people. You need to leave them alone. Something replied with, We're gonna keep them in the dark. He then asked, Why did you kill these children? To which a voice responds with, quote, because they don't step in heaven yet. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. I don't um, understand that either. My guess is that the quote, because they don't step in heaven yet, possibly means that, I don't know, the person who kills them could possibly be in the house and like his spirit or whatever, and that. Since he isn't in heaven, nobody else can be. But I don't know because that would mean that 
one of the eight people who were murdered in the house actually were was the murderer. Travel Channel then provoked the spirit even more by saying, quote, you're the devil, you're a sinner. And something replied by saying, you're gonna give up blood. More disturbing. (laughs) Honestly, it's just, it's very disturbing. It's mm. more disturbing occurrences happen while Travel Channel are in the house, including an EVP saying, quote, Herman's gonna get you. End quote. Herman? Following the sound of toys being scattered around. Herman was one of the more children who was also killed in this house. No. With this, we have three possible killers, including a Herman, a child, the Reverend Kelly, and... Wait, Herman's a suspected killer? Well, Herman's gonna get you. I don't know, it sounds pretty creepy to me. But no, I mean, no, no. It's, it's- If he's a child, it could be playful, but... Yeah, yeah. He was never a suspected killer. But I honestly kind of went on, like, a rampage on this travel channel thing because it was just... I mean, the occurrences that happened while they were in the house and just the people that they were able to interview before even going in the house was... I mean, it was bizarre. It was really bizarre. But, yeah. Questions, comments, concerns... There's a lot of concerns. <laughs> Agreed. I have so many concerns. I don't know if I can verbalize them. This one was spooky and I liked it. Yeah. I liked this one because I've never heard. I've heard of the true crime associated with this. I've never heard all the spookiness. So I really liked it. Some people have said to have heard voices and felt people touching them. But honestly, the strangest thing that I heard was the L mark on Chris Deadman's back because that's almost like, almost as if they were like scarring him. Mm-mm, I don't like it. I'm glad that y'all liked it though. I do like that one. It's a good one. Oh. Yeah, we got to go to Iowa and get potatoes and go to the Villisca Axe Murder House. Yeah. Why potatoes? Because I love potatoes. I mean, I'm not complaining. I love potatoes, too. I just, I was like, did I miss something in the story with potatoes? Oh, no, just (laughs) Idaho. Idaho, like, has a lot of potatoes. Like, a lot of potatoes. Iowa is known for potatoes. I know. It's not in Iowa. (laughs) Shit. so confused. Jesus Christ, what is today? I've got to start sleeping straight. It is Sunday the 5th. Uh, To all of our listeners, happy, merry, late Christmas. If you celebrate celebrate Christmas, if you celebrate anything else, I don't know other holidays because I am very American. Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, 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 what? (laughs) Hanukkah? I'm sorry. Um, Happy Hanukkah, y'all. It's just... We're trying to get them all in in the same word because it's too much. <laughs> Happy Christmas, Kwanah um, Hanzuka. Kwanaka a thing? Christmas, Kwanah Hanzuka. <laughs> I don't know. Happy holidays is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that you guys had just a, the best Christmas and Santa brought you all the things. Yes. Because Santa is bringing my dogs a whole lot of things. He already told me. I'm really hoping Santa brings all my stuff in time because. Uh, um, he's shipping it via Amazon. So 
Yeah. Really, same. Same, really same. starting to get anxious here. I appreciate the fact that Santa has a, um, has started utilizing Amazon for deliveries. Yes, but the uh, the old sleigh and reindeer were much more dependent, time wise. They were more de- dependable. Yeah, yeah, but he's busy. He's a busy. He can't stop at places like my house. He's got to Amazon that stuff. He works one day a year. Yeah, but he's- how many people are there? In That's not my problem. World. He knew this going into it. He signed that job offer. Okay. Hey, but he didn't know what the population would be this many years down the road. He's he like, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Plus, he's and got like thirty-five elves or something like. That. I hope he has more than thirty-five <laughs> elves. I hope it's like thirty-five hundred elves. I mean, they're magic. They could have like six hands or something. I don't know. I don't know if elves ever have six hands. I think that'd be a different cryptid. Oh, you know what? We should have done. Um, oh, what is it called? It's a cryptid. It's a spooky cryptid in. Oh, the German one. Yeah, the German one. Now I have to look you're, it up. You're talking about. Um, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. I know it. I know it. Doesn't it start with a K? I feel yeah. like it's like a C. C or a K. Hey, babe, since you're in here, that Christmas cryptid, the one Krampus. that... Krampus. Krampus. Never mind, we got it. Thank you. Yeah, That's useless. <laughs> okay, anyways. See, every time I need my husband, the German side just then, he's nowhere to be found. The Asian side, when I was trying to do math earlier, nowhere to be found. There's Aww. German? Yeah, his dad's German. His mom's Korean. I had no idea his dad was German. Where did you think his last name come from? It's German as shit. I didn't even guess. <laughs> hey, I was just like, you know what? Sure, sure. He's Asian. <laughs> he's Korean, okay. right? Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening to Hell on Heels podcast. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hell on Heels podcast. Feel free to email us your true crime and or paranormal stories or weird occurrences. And we would be happy to post them on here um, at hellonheelspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Linktree by going to https colon slash slash Linktree. Well, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash hellonheelspodcast. You'll find all the links to all the things that we have. As always, a big shout out to Amanda's husband, James, for creating our intro music. And then be sure to like, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you guys prefer. If we are not on your preferred listening platform, please let us know and we'll work on getting those episodes up on those channels. Well, this has been Hell on Hills podcast. Thank you guys for listening and bye. Bye. Bye.